Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Kirsten Barnes. Kirsten has been working as a mental performance consultant for over 20 years. She has worked with Canadian national teams of rowing, swimming, cycling, and women's rugby sevens, as well as individual summer and winter athletes. Kirsten competed for Canada in rowing in the 1988 and 1992 Olympic Games. She is a double gold medalist from the 1992 Games and a world champion in 91 in the World Championships of Rowing in both the four and eight. Born in England, she returned many years later and worked as a sports psychology consultant for the Lane 4 Management Group and Business Leadership and Performance Consultancy from 1997 to 2007. During this time, as part of the British Association of Sport and Exercise Science, she provided sports psychology support to numerous teams and athletes and projects in support of UK Olympic sport. Returning to Canada in 2007, Kirsten started working as a mental performance consultant for Canadian Sport Institute Pacific, in 2008. She is now the Director of Performance Services Team for Canadian Sports Institute Pacific and provides mental performance support to the Women's Rugby Sevens National Team Program and individual athletes. She is also an amazing mother and partner and I am honoured to have her on the show today. Welcome Kirsten. Thank you Scott. It's nice to talk again after a while. It has been a little while since we did spend some time on some unique projects. so let's let's go back. Uh, we were talking just before because I wanted to clarify a couple of details. But you were born in England, but as you described it to uh, hippie parents who were cruising around England and sort of had you in a in a in a convenient location, so to speak. So maybe you can tell me about that. How did how did life start for Kirsten? For me, so yeah, so as my mum and dad would, would would tell it, my dad in actually in 1962 hitchhiked around the world, leaving Vancouver and did a, a 12 month plus journey, um, literally, you know, down through New Zealand, Australia, through India, Pakistan, Hindu Kush, um, Eastern Europe, and then back back home. And I think when my parents met, my mom was really intrigued by the opportunity to travel. And so they had planned this two year trip and had pre-bought a Volkswagen van in Germany, which my dad was gonna, um, which he did, deck out into a, a camper van set up. And they basically lived in that for, for two years and, and drove around Europe and, and had their, their trip there. And I came along in the middle of that, literally after year one. And, um, and you know, I recall my mom saying they just wanted to make sure they were an English-speaking country. So they went to the UK and settled down in London for about six or eight months. My dad actually got some work. He's an architect and uh, got some work in, in London. And so they, they lived there for about eight months. Wow. And then carried, carried on their journey. And 
believe it or not, apparently they drove their Volkswagen van onto a, an Italian cruise liner and which took them back to New York and uh, missed Woodstock by three days. <laughs> <laughs> which I think they're rather disappointed about and then just carried on, drove back across Canada, Vancouver. So I grew up in Vancouver from the age of probably one and a half by the time we got back there. Wow, that's an amazing story about your parents. So they were obviously... Um journeyman type people who wanted to just explore and see the world and stuff and and they, what describe your parents like how you see them now and how you saw them then in some sense in this the story that they told you well certainly um and i've always loved loved traveling and even in in rowing years and and later years taking opportunities when when it was possible to see the parts of the world that you were so privileged to go to as part of a, a sports trip usually but dad really enjoyed his travel he was a very sort of curious guy and, and I think um, you know for me key, key things taking away from him is around that that curiosity that exploration um, and probably more more deeply is his work ethic and discipline around getting things done and making things happen so mm. um, and 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 mom as well and I think um, she got her curiosity was with my dad and being able to have those, some of those experiences that he had had. Mm. And she, she was able to, to have similar ones, but together. Mm -hmm. yeah. So who, who, who or what influenced you into um, the sport of rowing? Well, um, I'd probably take one step back because for the, from about the age of five to 15, I figure skated. Okay. And if I had a, a childhood, you know, sporting ambition, I'm not sure I'd call it a dream but really at that point, but certainly um, a focus was to be an ice dancer for Canada. Really? Okay. Wow. <laughs> and, and as I got growing into sort of those mid-teens, suddenly I was getting taller and the boys were getting shorter. And so the whole, the look wasn't quite working for me in terms of being able to pursue <laughs> this dream of being an ice dancer. So I skated, you know, I, and we went to a, a country club and, and after school every day and some early mornings. And that, that was what I was really committed to. And um, it was actually in my grade 10 year at high school. And a few years prior, uh, there was a teacher at school who had decided to start a rowing team. He had, been, he had been approached by some of the rugby guys and then later some of the women at the school who are a few years older than me to start a rowing team out of the Vancouver Rowing Club, which he was a member. So it all kind of lined up and it made sense and, and worked. So, to, you know, a couple of years later, a few of us come along and there was literally a school announcement. Anyone interested in trying out for the rowing team, go to room, whatever, at lunchtime and sign your name up. And what it felt like is like a bunch of us got together and, so oh, let's go sign up for the rowing team because the really good looking guys are the rugby players in the winter and the rowers in the spring. <laughs> Yay! And we get to go away on weekends. Yay! You know, so, you know it, it, um, it was quite funny because I think at that point for me, the skating was probably, the writing was on the wall and I, and I, was, I was in a moment of, of a teenage life where a change, I was ready for a change mm. and it really kind of landed in my lap. I mean, honestly... I couldn't, you know, if I was at a different high school or a different group of friends and the absence of that, absence of that teacher, none of that would have been in place. So it was just, you know, things falling into place together with, but, but very much on a social side. That's what always 
I guess going into mental performance and looking back and thinking where that start point was, there was a there was a socialization component about starting rowing for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I, was, I, was I hadn't gonna, had. Mm-hmm. I was going to explore that for a second because I wanted to because the two the two sports are sort of diametrically opposed in some sense. One is, you know, very artistic. And in fact, we, we know that the physiology of it is probably the least considered element of it, maybe more now, but probably in your day, very little. Mm -hmm. And then you look at, um, you know, rowing, which is a hugely physiological demand sport and stuff. So what were you attracted to before we get into the, the, the fraternal nature of the sport and all the connections and stuff, what were you attracted to in ice dancing? And then what, you know, did, did something in that attract you to rowing or are they two different things in your mind in some sense? I think, I think they are very different as you you alluded to there, but I think there's something about rhythm and flow. Mm. And there, you know, despite when you look at rowing, you may not see an aesthetic to it, but when you're in a boat, and connecting with the water and, and moving the boat through water and, and connecting with teammates. There's something about like that that's quite similar to connecting, I think, on the ice, your feet mm-hmm. on the ice. And, and even whether you're on your own or, or in a pair situation or a dance pair situation, just the sort of, I, that, that's, the, that's the only connection that I can really articulate mm-hmm. between the two, a rhythm, a flow, um, and then if I get deeper into, I think about, I mean, I learned tremendous concentration skills in figure skating. I mean, I spent, you know, hours doing figures of eights, mm-hmm. um, patchwork, all that, that stuff. Um, and I think as a young age, coachability and the whole learning, like being a student of your sport and learning and reflecting and working hard at things and, you know, showing up on time, all the sort of things you, I think at a young age learned that, that, I mean, all that just naturally transferred over to rowing, like in a heartbeat, that, that was easy. But I think it's one of the things that people don't understand about something like figure skating, when you, especially if you're not an edu- uh, educated within the environment, is you watch it on TV or you watch it in, in a performance and you perceive it to be very artistic. But most people don't know about all of the, the minutiae that goes into really yeah. learning how to skate and the figures and all that sort of stuff. So it is very work ethic oriented and very constructed and structural in some sense. Mm-hmm. And actually, if I think about like, when we did work on endurance, you just skated laps and laps of the ice and you were, you had to hold a posture and you change direction and forwards and backwards and you had to sort of execute. And that, you mean, round and around and around before you start doing your spins and your jumps and your routines or your dances, like there was a, the workouts were sectioned into components, you know, that, that you looked at different things. So, yeah. Um, so tell me about the, 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 the friendship part of rowing. You, you get into this and you start to, to discover it. And it, it, is that the central piece of, of what keeps you attached to it? Or do you get attached to other parts of rowing? Okay, quick break here to tell you about reconditioning. Reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises, like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications. Fundamentally, reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatments and training systems more efficient and effective. Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminating issues that stand in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. 
Level two goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links to the overall preparation program. It becomes deeply considerate of the context of that program and the environments of the preparation. Finally, our reconditioning mastery mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home. It allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice in a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances, irons out all the question marks, and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see when our next courses are being held and when our next mastery mentorship is starting. Become a reconditioning specialist and join the reconditioning revolution. Okay, we're back. I definitely felt like, this is going to, to me, this sounds a bit coined, like a duck to water, you know, like I felt like when I got into, we learned at the Vancouver Rowing Club on this great big wide barge. It was the most amazing thing to learn rowing on. It had this platform down that was super wide, it had this platform down the middle, this massive tiller at the end. And it meant that you could play or you could play, you could play around with, well, which side do I want to row on, you know, port or starboard. The coaches could come up and help place your hands and, give you tuition in, in that in that way to really accelerate some of that learning, I think, around what the rowing stroke feels like. And I, I remember those days, and honestly, they were pitch black in the pouring rain in February, March in Vancouver. And I can remember our parents taking turns driving us because we didn't have our driver's license yet. And they, they would, I'm not sure, sure how happily, but sit outside <laughs> the rowing club in their car, waiting you know, cars lined up and waiting for us. But there was something, again, I think, I think it was the rhythm and the flow. I just, I really, really enjoyed the feeling of it. Mm. Um, and I know some people look at you like you're nuts because eventually it really, it does hurt. It is a sport that does, that hurts. But I, I, I enjoyed that. Like I enjoyed the, um, the endurance part of it. I enjoyed the, again, the, the connection and I really mostly rowed with others. I did very little sculling. So I really was a sweet rower and so was always in a boat with another person. And, and sometimes I attribute, I think, some of that, that social side that was a little bit absent in skating in terms of that standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody else because it was, I was on my own as a skater. I mean, maybe if things had looked differently and I had a skating partner, you, you get that same sense. But there was something about this achievement with others you know, you know, doing exactly the same thing, that coordinated effort mm. that really landed with me in, in, in a way that maybe I hadn't felt in other sports. Mm. What, uh, what was intrinsically within you that helped you get past the pain of and the suffering of the sport? Because it is a high pain suffering sport and everybody has their own. Some people like that. Some people just suffer through it. Some people, you know, what was what was your key to to being? Well, deal with that i think i liked it <laughs> yeah i would maybe i shouldn't say thrive on it but maybe i do maybe there's something about it that i actually i i, I wasn't scared of it maybe that's it you know i you could anticipate it you you know it's coming and i think not being scared of it and embracing it in a way that because it's all about getting better and get and, and in rowing getting faster and how can I do that in me and how can I do that with people I'm rowing with and part of that is enduring 
some of that pain, but you're not in pain all the time. Like it's just these moments and in certain workouts and in, and in racing, but then over, over the years, you, your, your training allows you to manage that pain and, and work with it. And, and it doesn't take over your mind as you get more skilled and, and your, and your physiology is more adapted and you, you become fitter and better at, at, at the skill of rowing and then the execution of it physiologically. Mm. Um, Was there a moment that you can reflect on that you knew that you were going to be an, uh, an Olympic class athlete that you were going to be able to maybe go to the Olympics and this wasn't just something that you'd maybe thought about, but now was really going to happen for you in some sense. I think I think that came in stages. Like just as you were starting to ask that question, immediately my head went back to um, the 1985 high school rowing championships in St. Catharines, Ontario. So it was a big deal. This little high school from Vancouver is going to go out west, or are we sorry to St. Catharines, and and we won. Mm. And um, yeah, I like winning. I like being competitive, <laughs> and, I, and I liked I liked winning the, the races. You know, I didn't win every race I ever went in, mm. but I going to try to and I and I liked the effort of trying and when it was successful that was really great too and, but I think that was my first taste and then the following summer um Canada Summer Games represented BC and that was like the next step where we won gold and silver medals and fours and eights and pairs and it was just so again so much fun like really really and there was something about the people and a couple of them were, were high school friends on that, that particular team. And then some new people. And then the next step was sort of, was coming to UVic and being part of a, a, a high level varsity program that was directly connected to the national team. Mm. And having a coach who was in a position when the time is right in the year, sort of April time to put you in pairs and go off to a, a national team trials. Mm. So it was probably like more these these sort of stages like what's just a little bit ahead of me. Mm. And then it wasn't until probably um, in 1987 was in a pair with Kathleen Huddle at the Pan Am games where we won. And that was my first sort of national team summer. And I think that was when I thought, Hmm, maybe I am good enough to do this mm. and, and be on a national team and go to world championships. Oh, and there's the Olympic games. Mm. So I, that's probably how it was processed in my head. I don't, I mean, maybe it sounds odd. I don't know whether I had that initial or oh, want to go to the Olympics and rowing. Mm. I think I'd, I'd always loved sport. And I think I'd always been ath- athletic. So maybe there was a bit of me in there that, that had this hope of, oh, if I'm ever good at something, wouldn't it be great to go to the Olympics? But I don't remember it being an overly conscious thought. Mm. But I am, you know, like I can articulate, this is a very long time ago now, I can remember those kind of stages of, oh, yeah, maybe I can do a bit more. Oh, maybe I can do a little bit more. Mm. Um, and mm. kind of putting my hand up and stepping up, like taking responsibility and stepping into that space mm. and having a go. And, and yeah. What, what did you way. do with uh, the feeling of um, winning and losing? Was, um, were you a good winner and loser or did you struggle with those things? Um, what did losing do for you? Were you able to, sort of reflect or were you self-reflective in that and that time or were you were did it frustrate you just just curious yeah I think I was reasonably self-reflective I mean, you know I think about those influential people and I think I was really blessed even 
even in the skating days, but certainly with rowing, just having great coaches that could um, support and guide those processes of winning and losing, you know, so always, always be a gracious winner and always, always learn from, from the, the loss or the mistakes or the things that, that happened that didn't lead to the result that you wanted. And so I think, I think being in an environment with, with other, with teammates that were of similar sort of mindsets and then a coach that could guide that process, you know, we never left a race without a debrief, mm. whether that was a team debrief, like a crew debrief or an individual touch base by, by the coach. So I think there, but in particular, our moral is ability to reframe and, and engage in that reflective process. Um, so even if I did struggle a bit, I think he almost didn't allow, allow me to struggle because he was there to have that conversation and to make sense of, what, what had just happened and allow me to say stuff. And there were, cause there were, there was, there was one world championships in particular where we come forth that we'd been on the podium leading up to it. And it would have been a um, really strong headwind. And we just, we essentially weren't strong enough. And, and the West Germans, cause even still in my day, East and West Germany existed. Um, we had been beating and then they beat us at the world championships and, and I was stroking the boat. And I, I actually, that was probably one time where I really took it personally and um, blamed myself for the result. And I can remember sitting in this, the, the team tent and, and on this bench talking to Al about, about it. And that probably saved me from myself in terms of like over analyzing and, and digging myself into a hole about what had happened. And, and the reality was we had some things to go home and work on. And that was the best piece of you know, information for the next two years that came out of that, that particular experience. You know, we weren't rowing badly. We just, maybe some stuff to be better on and rowing into a headwind, but we needed to get stronger and and then always identify that stuff that's in your control, right? To, that, mm. that you can go away and, and do something with. So um, I think I was generally pretty good, but certainly having the right people around me helped. So just to understand your, and for the listener to understand your academic career, how does your academic career spool up? Are you going to school while you're, you're an athlete or does that all happen for you after your athletic career? No, I was a, a, a classics or student athlete for mm-hmm. most, for pretty much all of my rowing years. Yeah, I was a, a UVic student and did a reduced course load. And I mean, in, in, in back in our day, the, the full-time training athlete perhaps didn't quite exist like it does nowadays. I think, I think there has been a, an evolution there and a, a change. So I was um, quite able to row in the morning, do three classes and do a second workout, whether it was a row or a weight session between September to April. And then, the, but then there would be a big shift and we would go uh, be centralized in London, Ontario or Victoria and um, be rowing two or three times a day. So once, once the school piece was out for the year, but rowing fits nicely into that, that model because, you know, we've got solid university rowing programs, feeding national teams, the academic year ends in April and you can focus on the summer where the racing is. So what um, were you doing your undergraduate in? Yeah. yeah. What, 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 were you do, what, were, what was the subject matter you were doing it in? It was a BA in human performance. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so how does how does the um, love affair with psychology come to to pass for you? Where do you, where do you discover that in your? So that came to be um, where, believe it or not, I when I when in nineteen ninety 
three. So the Olympics have happened and I had a couple more, a few more courses to do at UVic. So I'm back in Victoria. And I would probably um, say I was a really good candidate for game plan, <laughs> our, our existing game plan program, because I, I, I knew I still had to finish my undergrad. So I, I was set up for post-Olympic um, transition. Like I knew I still had my undergrad to finish. But after that, I wasn't that clear about what I wanted to do. And I actually was asked to give a talk at William Head Prison, which is a minimum, I think it still exists, a minimum security prison here on Vancouver Island. Mm. And um, so off I went with a sports psych lecture from UVic because he was running as this program. And it was actually the car ride home and we were talking and, he, and I said, I was, you know, don't know what to do. I had some different ideas. And he said, well, you know, you know, you've done, you've done your sports psych undergrad in, in the program and, you know, everything you talked about there was, you know, such good sports psych stuff. Why don't you think about sports psychology? And honestly, it was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and I went off to the head of department and I said, listen, I, I, I love Victoria and I've loved my time here and I would stay and I, I think I'm ready for a change. And so he basically gave me um, some names of different uh, colleagues in different universities around the world and I wrote a letter and I um, applied to a master's to different master's programs and um, got accepted at two one in, in New Zealand University mm -hmm. of Otago in Dunedin and then uh, Bristol University okay. in England and I ended up going the, the UK route cool. so again like these things it was sort of um, the how it it's opportunities, right? Like, you know, I, I, and, and I think maybe I come back to that word curious, you know, curiosity again. And so being, and maybe a little bit vulnerable and willing to have a conversation with somebody I barely knew, but as he asked questions and we got talking, it planted the seed of like, Oh, yeah, maybe this is something I would be interested in. And then, and then looping it back to me, taking that responsibility to go and talk to the right people um, and take those next steps but that's it was it, I mean it's a bit unfair perhaps to say it was a, a fluke but it, <laughs> it, it, I didn't I didn't fully see it coming that's for sure that that, that would be the the rest of my life <laughs> that's really cool yeah. well before we get into that part of your life I'm kind of interested in and I don't know how to frame the question perfectly so I'm going to pitch it to you and see how you respond to it but I'm interested in how winning a gold medal in your sport has changed from a perspective per, and a and a how you use it in relevance of the work that you do and the life that you've had from the day that it happened in some sense to now so in, in my mind i'm thinking okay you know you've won a gold medal and then typically people want to know about what that felt like what you experienced all this stuff but then you go through all this process of growing and living and, and you become a sports psych psychologist and now you look back on it from a reflective perspective and it gives you some some sense of bearing on the work that you're doing so I'm kind of curious how that's changed for you and how you use it now and how you used it then mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah yeah I think um it's definitely in informed my practice mm. so all the experiences from from and it's not just the racing and winning it's the whole daily training environment, the whole, the journey to, to that end point, the, the highs and lows and the ups and downs. And, and as we spoke earlier about the wins and the losses and all the different experiences 
at that you know senior international level of sport um and all the learning that went on to 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 make us great racers and then and then absolutely apply that when it mattered most on August 1st and 2nd in 1992 <laughs> to to come out with the result that we wanted so i think when i when i switched tacks and 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 i was really again curious about some of the theoretical underpinnings of sports psychology and the applied practice of of sports psych um my my phd was really again an opportunity to um, explore something I was actually really, really interested in. And I think that that really helped those four and a half years. <laughs> um, but then knew that I wanted to be an applied practitioner. You know, I, my, my, in my heart, it was about helping others um, and believing in other people's potential and, and helping them. They're not going to experience my, my experience, but help them experience their experience with any support that I can provide based on what I, what I know, Mm -hmm. um, and what I've, what I've experienced and what I've learned along the way. Um, and it's in the same breath, what I've learned very quickly is, is rowing's rowing. And I, I had my first two opportunities was with with England squash and England women's rugby team, and they're not rowing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And (laughs) and so how really quickly had to learn about other sports. And I, I love that opportunity. It was so cool to, Oh, not everyone trains like rowers train, you know. <laughs> it can be done differently, and and honestly, like watching watching the game of squash and and how hard that is, and how long those games are, and the literally the pools of sweat on that court that have to get mopped up, you know, sometimes between serves because it's so insane, like you know, and the the, the blister, you know, we've talked about the blisters on our hands, but the blisters on their feet. Um, Anyway, so I think I'm digressing a bit here, but um, I think my my sporting experiences informed my applied practice that I coupled with the theoretical learnings, with the academic learnings, um, again with the with my own belief in people's potential to achieve what they were wanting to achieve, and and helping along that way. You know, I'm, I'm not doing it for you. I can't do it for you but let me help you as best I can. How do you approach that, that concept? Like sometimes winning a gold medal or not winning one is a hollow process because or a hollow eventuality because people don't necessarily connect with the process as you talked about, like, because ultimately you may win or you may not win, but the, the, the sensitivity and the, and the benefits of it, of of either side of that are all in the process of you really connecting with what you're doing while you're doing it. And uh, like, I was lucky enough to work on, and I asked the question because I was lucky enough to work on this project, this last project with uh, Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtues. They came back for their last time. And they really talked about the fact that they felt that they had put everything that they could into this, this opportunity and whether they won a gold medal or didn't, they would have felt the same in the end, you know, certainly wanted to win a gold, but that they had, they had invested in the whole process of, of creating themselves and crafting this thing. And I'm wondering, both as an athlete and now as a professional, how you connected with that and how you get your clients in some sense to connect with the process so that there, there isn't this hollowness at the end of winning the gold medal or losing the gold medal, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's what you, we talked about a moment ago around like that, that self-reflection piece and really engaging 
in the day-to-day efforts that you're making. You know, we talk about belief, whether it's, you know, the internal belief you you create for yourself and, and the belief you take from others that are positively supporting you around you. Um, but I believe you need to, to evidence that. You need to understand the, the, the journey that, that you're on and, and what each day looks like. And I think you're right. I think it is easy for people. I think as sports we, and as athletes in sports and even the public, we, we don't probably see enough of the, the journey that goes into those um, final outcomes. People, we turn our TVs on every two years to watch a winter and summer Olympics and we just see all we ever see is the end result. And so that, that understanding, and I think that, that we got to be careful that that doesn't impact athletes, you know, super talented athletes, and hopefully they've developed a really good work ethic. They've entered into a national team program that's been reasonably successful, but to keep it successful is really hard. <laughs> so you really have to understand your sport, understand what it takes every single day to to get that result, but to feel proud of everything that you're doing every day. So that when, if that result, whether it is or isn't what you really, really wanted perhaps, but you've got all this great stuff behind you, all this great learning. And if you are doing a bit of reflection regularly, I think that helps the mind kind of understand what you're getting out of it. And, and some of the, the, the tools and things, I mean, some of my favorite moments is, getting a phone call from an athlete two or three or four or five years after they've retired saying, remember when we did that pressure model and I'm, I'm, I'm going into an interview or I have a bar exam or I have something happening. And I, I just want to remember like that was so helpful then. And I think it's the same now because these are, so for me now and professionally, these aren't just sports skills. I mean, they're like, most things are life skills because mm-hmm. we're going to enter into competitive interviews, scenarios or presentation situations that, take us out of our comfort zones and understanding ourselves through different personality tools that just help us be better in our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. Our relationships um, are all part of that, that experience. At least I, I I hope I try to create that for people in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the aha moment may, may, maybe in life two years later after they stopped sport, it may not have happened in the sport. I don't know because everyone's so unique and different in how they take on board that information and then, and then use it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested also in the, you know, like in in any relationship, whether it's a relationship with another human being or with, uh, with, with your, your, craft or what you do there's this kind of moment of call it infatuation where you get excited about something and you're kind of you fall in love with that but then there's that long-term love that you that you really craft what did you what were you infatuated with when you first saw psychology as a profession and what have you fallen in love with what you do over time that's different about that gosh that's a good question um i think there was, this, there was a little piece of me as I started learning more and more in the, the theoretical side of sports psychology. Um, there was a bit of me that wished, oh, I wish I knew about this then. Like, I wish I knew then what I know now. <laughs> and, oh, I wish we'd done some of this with our crew. Like, there was so, even, even right from the get-go, I felt like there were things that were capturing my attention, partly because in the moment they're catching my attention, but also I think thinking, oh, I wonder what that would have been like if we'd done more of that or if we'd know a little bit more about ourselves or, um, and we, we had a tremendously positive and amazing dynamic within our, our program. 
Um, and I still think, oh, but I wonder if we, you know, w- w- what else we could have known about each other. Mm-hmm. So that might have been a, a, that, that real initial um, curiosity. And then I think as, as time went on, you know, as I said earlier, I loved, I loved the fact that I got involved with other sports, like not putting myself back into rowing, I think was, for me, was really smart. Um, and so learning about other sports and then, and then I just love the people. It's all about the people. And so all the uniquenesses that everybody brings to their, their sport, but their circumstances in that sport and how to help them and support them through whether it's a challenge or an opportunity or um, anything, you know, I think sports psych can still come across as that, Oh, I haven't got a problem. I don't need sports psych, but really, really trying to break down that barrier and seeing it as performance enhancing. So you're really great at this. How can you be even better at it? And, and finding those, those ways, because it's not always about a tool, you know, you've got, you've got sort of, toolkits in your mind that you can help people with but sometimes and especially as the athletes get more and more experienced it's about listening it's about the conversation you're going to have with them mm. the conversation well that they want to have with you and they want to bounce ideas off of you those are amazing moments mm. when they and I actually do believe people have the answers within they they just don't know it and and so part of our my job has been to ask questions and to be curious and to help them find those answers within and that they literally answer for themselves because mm. then they're going to go off and be different mm-hmm. or make that change and hold on to that new behavior or something because they've actually identified it with themselves. It doesn't always work that way, but that's sort of the ultimate um, experience. So I think that learning about new sports and, and, and engaging with just the people and I, and I guess I'm focusing a little bit on athletes here, but coaches as well. And even my, my staff colleagues, like the whole high performance environment I've just really loved and really felt like I've thrived in. Mm. Um, and I'm sure, and that that comes back to having had such a great experience as an athlete. And I, and I don't mean just the result, but the whole experience of the years that I did row. Um, do, you, do you have inherent strategies you use to understand a sport or is that something that you just that that comes to you intuitively or do you actually strategically approach i'm going to learn about the sport i'm going to do it this way so to speak well i think the most strategic maybe i'd like to say uh, we did reading and stuff but to be honest being there Mm. watching watching and learning watching and asking questions i would spend hours behind a squash court and whoever was sat there, I would just make them sit with me for the next 20 minutes and I'd ask some questions. Tell me what that shot is. Tell me what's happening there. Why are they moving that direction? Hmm. And then they'd go off and the next person would come up, whoever I could find, you know, with a coach or an athlete and just being embedded in those environments. And, and you know, the, the time in the UK, it was just, there were, I mean, I became a part-time employee of, of, of England squash. And the, the, so I was blessed with time to be able to do that, being at training in the training environment, um, you know, three days a week meant that I could really um, get to understand that sport. Um, I think there's rugby, which I love. 
I still follow the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're making me think about some of the, maybe the learnings I haven't, like it's been harder. And I, and, and I think like, even though I never played squash, there was something about that I could watch it differently. Um, I never played a lot of pitch or court-based team sports. So I think there's something absent in me around um, moving with my team, with opposition, mm. That the the whole pers- um, perspective on on a, on a bigger space, mm. <laughs> so <laughs> I still get lost and I notice in myself. Like when I when I really take myself back and look at the whole pitch, for example, and see how lines are being formed and lost and regained, and mm. but, but that doesn't come naturally. Like I really have to work on that. I ha- um, I notice I'll follow follow the ball. That's, that's actually interesting. I want to play off that for a second. And maybe it's something you've thought about or haven't thought about, but as a, as a sports psych in the role that you play, um, some sports are, 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 you know, every sport is different, like you said, and some are, there's a lot of strategy involved, a lot of technical, tactical aspects. And then other sports that, you know, it's basically grin and bear it and get through it. And then there's some strategy within the, the, the core of that. Um, how do you manage the psychology of an athlete who has to deal with strategy and all the thing, the nuances around strategy, um, how you play off of somebody else's strategy versus somebody who basically just goes out and buries themselves in the water swimming or buries themselves. You know, I know there's strategy in those sports as well, but it's inherently not quite the same as if you're like playing squash, you know, you're, you're trying to get the guy to maybe accept that he's getting you to go to the corner and you're, you know, he's playing you and moving you and all that kind of stuff. Just talk about that for a second and how you approach that. So I uh, very, very carefully, because I I don't, I don't fully believe it's my responsibility to even have those conversations. Now I will support those conversations. So you're making me think of it with a couple of middle distance runners, you know, tactics come into the conversation and I will always say you gotta to talk to the coach about that mm. like I, I'm just not in a position you know what even in rowing mm. it's not my I think you've got to be very careful in in the roles that we play around some, some other information but I can ask questions mm-hmm. I can get them to tell me what they think and when they articulate that say how does that sound you saying that out loud does that feel like the right thing you need want to do mm. and if they're not sure then you need to go back and have a conversation with the coach or maybe they'll come okay, with, this is what comes the conversation with the information with the coach. I just need to make sense of it. So, okay, well talk, so talk me through the race plan. How do you want to approach that first 200 of an 800? Okay. What about the middle? And so I'm not really, I'm not offering advice. In fact, mm-hmm. I, 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 I hope I rarely offer advice really. It really, it's a very fine line I think between, because again, they're, my experiences are my experiences and, and with the exception of maybe working in rowing where there is some connection, um, I think it's the, the ownership is on the athlete or that team. So even in rugby, those teams, I mean, the coach has to lead those conversations. If I have a team meeting and they want to talk about it, I'll facilitate the conversation to allow them to talk about it. If it sounds like they're going around in circles or they're not landing or anything, well, I can, I can try to jump in and manage that situation. Mm. But um, so that's, that's probably my answer to you is I feel like it's, it's handled very, very delicately because it's really, I think that's a strong dynamic between athlete or team and coach. Mm-hmm. And then 
I can get better in my knowledge of the sport and be able to ask good questions and, and make, I can make observations. If I'm there, if I'm watching, then I feel more justified to offer an observation. Oh, I noticed this happened. Or I noticed when you tried to push there, it, it didn't look like you got the response you wanted. But if I'm not there mm-hmm. or I haven't been able to watch it, then mm-hmm. I really rely on what the athlete's going to um, feedback mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, what's been the most um, strangely interesting sport that you've worked with that you you were really taken by when you first got into it? Um, well, I, I did a couple of years with British Equestrian. Mm. And that was fascinating because the athlete is the horse. <laughs> and there was early days of bringing in... Um, the, the notion of an IST into the equestrian environment and hearing how those riders run their days. I mean, I don't know how true this is across all equestrian disciplines. I was with three-day eventing, um, but the, the role, the, the jobs those riders play in looking after multiple multi-million dollar horses in stables um, day in, day out. So getting them to go to a gym <laughs> to, you know, Mental training was probably the one piece that they, they could really wrap their heads around literally and, and buy into. Um, but that whole connection between the human and the horse and so, you know, how their nerves impacted the animal and, but, but the, the care being very much about the, the horse, that, that was really in, an interesting um, experience to, to well, be involved in. Yeah, I'm sure. Very cool. I think, um, I'll just embarrass myself, but I did again a, few years probably when I when I knew you um with the men's tech team um solemn ski team mm-hmm. and uh I I can ski <laughs> I can't ski down I ice water injected you know slopes <laughs> that and so I get to the top of these runs and and the coach would say oh you know meet me halfway down and I would just I'm the only one with poles, you know, you know, in terms of the staff are all so experienced because they're carrying gates on their shoulders and up and down and moving things around. And I was of absolutely no help to that team at all from a logistical perspective. And I would have to like cut across and dig my edges in and then do a complete hop and cut across the course just to get myself down these runs. And sometimes I'd be at races and I'd have a radio mic, I'd have a radio on because I would be at the, in the finish area. But you had to get to the finish area, you had to ski down this tiny little space between a, tr- between a tree line and the course. So heaven forbid, you know, you're not going to go on the course and I really don't want to run into the trees. So I'm literally snow plowing all the way down this run. But the worst part was having... Canada across my back <laughs> I'd say to the team I think I'm a mild embarrassment to this entire team as I try to get down the mountain with Canada plastered over me and <laughs> Too yeah. funny. so that those those were fun yeah well talk about um you know you're a mom and talk about your balancing of being a mother being a partner and being good at what you do and the challenges that you've um, experienced in that and the, the, the special dynamics of having, having achieved that, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I think I was, when I was pregnant with our first child, first of two, 
um, I met with the director of the English Institute of Sport at the time, um, Wilma Shakespeare, and, and we, we went out for lunch and she, she wasn't, I didn't report to her, but the person I reported to was reported to her. And so I, I, I knew her reasonably well and I had an opportunity and she, and she had been one of these people raised two kids and worked all her life. She had been a netball player for Australia. She was the first and the youngest female netball coach in Australia and, and worked at the um, AIS and the Queensland Institute of Sport. And just for me, a real role model and somebody who I definitely look, looked up to. And, um, and I was really curious about like, what do you do here? Like I'm about to have a baby and like, do I stop work? Do I keep a hand in it? Do I, you know, take a little break? And anyway, so I, I was really, you know, inspired by her and, and the journey that she had taken and, and, and she'd kept a hand in it. And I think it was really that, that was a conversation anyway, that helped um, me form the route I wanted to take by becoming a mom, you know, in, in the, so my kids are both born in the UK and it's a six month maternity leave. So did the six months and, and kind of got back into work and organized childcare and, between my husband and I, just what, what our work days were going were gonna to look like. And, you know, cut back on it, a little bit of travel. And then when we moved back to Canada, um, and sort of, there was a year and a half where um, we were doing some other work in, in business before I got back into the work with the Institute or got back into working with the Institute. And, um, and I think th- th- there's tricky times because we were both working in a sort of client-centered environment so we both had challenges with with traveling with who we were working with and there we definitely had moments when we didn't communicate and we sit down eventually and it's like what do you mean you're away this week I'm away this week <laughs> and then it'd be on the phone to my parents can the kids sleep at your house for a week <laughs> so um we we kind of worked through that when we realized that that's not on we have to be better than that so um, so very, you know, it was it was a choice to to work, and and I'm I'm glad I I made that choice. I think, um, I mean, our kids are teenagers now; they seem all right. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I've messed them up badly. And I think that they, you know, I get think in my way of rationalizing it, you know, you, you they maybe that's what I want wanted them to see, and I wanted them to start to learn. I'm not super young or anything, but, you know, at a certain age where they take some responsibility for themselves and, you know, I'm not always going to be there. And, um, yeah, I was going to ask what, what the process of influence of your athletic career and your craft have, have brought to your to bear as a mom. Like have, have you been, um, somebody who really instigated your children's, um, connection to sport and to activity and things, or have you kind of let it flow? Uh, what's been your process? You know, I I was I think I think when you, when you have kids and you've got this sort of sporting background, I was really conscious that and and people always say, especially because both my husband and I were rowers, you know, oh your kid's going to row, and I was really con- no like I don't I don't care what they do. Sometimes I can't believe I'm going to re- say this in a recording, but sometimes I say. I just want them to be the best in the world at it. <laughs> I don't care what it is. <laughs> oh, anyway, I'll put that out there now. Um, so, and I kind of keep that to myself, but but they, obviously not now, I've just said it, but um, uh, so I don't really. Hmm. You want them to go for it is what you I want them to, to, to enjoy something. And I really, if, if, if it was, if it was music or the arts, 
in theater or if it is sport or or just something academic that they really really are passionate but it's more about the, the, the passion that you hold for something so I hope I think just and, and I think my parents did this for myself and my siblings just keep the door open like just try a whole bunch of different things okay I'll put my hand up and say yes they, they were more sport related things mm-hmm. than other stuff you know um Although, you know, my son loves playing chess and made sure he was always at the chess club at school at eight o'clock in the morning, you know. So really just trying to keep some breadth in there and then let them narrow it down. And so, but I mean, my daughter, so I was, and I'm really keen on, on that breadth for maybe as long as possible. And then I have to eat my words because my daughter at the age of two or three started a little ballet class at a church in Henley-on-Thames in England and never stopped. And mm. to this day, she's in a professional training program. She'll be applying for schools uh, in the next year wow. to be a dancer. And yeah. so that's her, and that's been her passion. She actually was quite a good field hockey player, really quite enjoyed field hockey. And, and I think um, kind of like me from the skating to the rowing, that the, the team sport experience, she actually really valued that, that team sport environment while dancing. And then it just came to a point for her where she couldn't do both. And she's picked dance and is absolutely, just incredibly passionate about ballet. Wow, that's very cool. Um, and our son plays soccer. And to be honest, he was kicking a ball around probably from the age of two or three in the back garden. And that was just the ball lying around and him picking it up. So I like to think they've they've come by their their passions honestly and and truthfully to, to them. Um, and our son's going to try a learn to row program this summer, but with friends from school. Um, and well, you, you never know. But I don't I don't live in hope. Um, I want to spin off that t- thing you said. I just want them to be the best in the world, and because I I'm <laughs> I, I think that's a great thing that you said. But I think. What interests me is when you when you're an athlete, being the best is actually achievable. You can actually define it, you know, by winning a gold medal in an Olympic Games, right? But in 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 life, you know, being the best sports psychologist, their best strength conditioning coach, or whatever, that's all sort of nebulous in some mm-hmm. sense. So, how do you def- how have you transitioned from being an athlete where you could define your best to what is your your best for you now and and how do you how do you evaluate yourself in the in the work that you do and in the, the process that you go through i think part of that definition the the shift for me is you're right that the, the concreteness of sport and then and, and achieving what we did in sport i feel like i could i can live in that more nebulous space because of that concrete achievement Mm. that I don't, I don't feel like, like I want to be great at what I do and, you know, be evaluated and get feedback and take that to make me better. But I'm okay in that, in that space of being, being like that. Like I don't need to be measured against somebody else. If people ask me back, that's the greatest compliment. Yeah. It's a challenging question. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think 
I think being, I think it's that, it's that feedback. It's that, um, yeah, being asked to come back. Hmm. Well, I guess I'll ask it a different way. How do you counsel? Like that's, that's part of the transition, right? From sport to real life, so to speak, is you've, you've been so focused and so dimensionally constructed around achieving a goal. And now you're just, and, and year after year or quad after quad, now that's over and your whole construct is completely different. Now you're deciding to do something else that doesn't have such finite terms around it. How do you counsel you know, the transitional athlete to mm-hmm. redefine what best is or what good's going to be for them. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe this is a, this is a better answer. I, I think what you, what you've, what you learn to do is you redirect that focus. So if I now I think back to like, like I laughed at myself that my PhD was another four and a half years. Like I, that I, I've lived these four year cycles for so long. And, and I, so I think what you do do, I mean, maybe, um, maybe it's semi-intuitively and maybe with some, with a, a stronger sense of conscious purpose around setting goals for yourself. Like, like you're, you're re- resetting these opportunities that are now in front of you. Now, if you don't know what those are, there is that period of exploration and, before committing to something. And, you, and I think being willing to accept that and to, and I, you know, I keep using the word curious, but to be, be curious and explore and figure out what that next step might be. But then once I think you, you latch onto something and it may, it may only be a year or something because you, you just, you just don't know, but if you latch onto something and then embed within that, okay, so what do I need to do to get better here? What, what can I do differently here to help me grow in this space? And I think if we're asking ourselves that what and how question all the time, like what have I got to do and how am I going to do it, which is what you do as an athlete anyway, then I think that transfers nicely into, into the world after sport. Mm. Um, and I think being patient, like giving yourself a chance to, to explore, if, especially if, if, in your athlete life, you, you haven't done a whole lot of that because everyone's different. And some people just, even I just, I chose not to do a lot of that part, but I was easily guided because I was already in an academic environment. And so I had structure after the Olympics, hmm. but um, to not panic and not get hung up. Oh, why haven't I been thinking about this? Well, you haven't. So now you can start and hmm. move, move forward. But I think creating some of that route, like, it was that routine and structure that I really noticed the absence of that I had to create for myself. So if you feel like, if you think about our lives as, you know, from kids in school, like elementary school and then high school, and then you're going to university, then you plunk sport in there, all of it is structured. Hmm. Someone's always telling us what to do, what to do next and where our next, where really where our next goal is, whether it's, you know, an exam that's coming up or a, a selection period or a world championships or Olympic games. And then I can remember when I moved to Bristol to start my, my PhD and I can remember sitting down going, Oh, is nobody going to tell me what to do? It was a self-directed program. Like I had, I had to create the whole entire system for myself now. And that took me off guard. So I was really happy to be there and I, I, and I was invested and I was ready to go. But then there was a whole layer beneath that. That was like, Oh, I mean, I have to do this day-to-day stuff for myself and and a lot of it was reading <laughs> just trying to figure out what I wanted to do but you know I joined the triathlon club so I, I got a triathlons after rowing and so I that was you know my mornings morning swims and I could so I started building out my day 
just like I had it done as an athlete. Mm. But I had to do it for me. Right. Nobody was there telling me what to do. So if we can accept a bit of that, I think as we transition into another phase of life, that um, all these great skills are transferable. Mm-hmm. But just take a little bit of time to think about what, what do I need to use right now? Oh, a little bit of that or anyway. That's yeah. really cool. The diversity uh, it gives you a better buffer for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read to you um, your purpose from my book, The Day You Were Born, because I do this for everybody for this mm-hmm. thing that I found. So you're an Aries 8, mar- born March 26. Mm-hmm. Your purpose is to learn the process of success step by step, mastering the technical while never losing touch with your passion. Always do what you're afraid to do, Emerson. This is a This is the energy of blocks and breakthroughs. If you stay blocked long enough, you'll have a nervous breakdown or a breakthrough. Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman on the Supreme Court in in its 208-year history. Diana Ross, March 26, crossed boundaries of race and age with her music. The Aries 8 dynamic is about living the spiritual life in alignment with the ego's needs. Control is an issue for these people, and so is their acute ability to scrutinize a situation in themselves. They strive for perfection and drive themselves and everyone else crazy. (laughs) This prevents their talents from emerging and drains their self-confidence. Their anger is turned inward, making them frustrated and giving them headaches. They erect impenetrable boundaries and have none at all and wish that someone would take care of them. Their world can only be as large as they can manage themselves. They have so much more to offer. If they can access their faith and have a little trust in the right people, must learn to confront what is really bothering them. Therapy is positive. Aries 8 is a great combination for analysis. I don't know if any of that resonates to you. I think the whole thing does. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) It's a fun little piece that I do because it, um, it, uh, about nine times out of 10 people are kind of floored by how, how, how much it resonates, but Mm Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a little piece of you. Well, uh, we have surprisingly spent an hour together. It's passed very quickly. It's been wonderful to learn about you. I will leave you with this uh, sort of final question. If um, if you were to go back and meet the girl who um, won the, the gold medal and you were chatting with her just afterwards and sort of talking about her life to be, what what counsel would you give her? Uh, to to really embrace and enjoy the success, but more that that shared moment with everybody. Mm. Mm. To really, really embrace that standing strong together and and what they've just achieved. Don't underestimate what what you've just achieved. Very cool. Well, thank you, my dear, my dear, for taking an hour of your life to spend with me. And uh, I hope everybody learns from your, your wisdom and your thoughts. So, well, you're very welcome. And it was truly a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, you have a nice day. Thanks, Scotty. We'll, see, we'll speak soon. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. And we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.